Hello, parasensory listeners. Um, I wanted to start this episode with a disclaimer. Um, if you haven't already figured out uh, from the title, this episode is about demonic possession. And I know some listeners out there may be sensitive to this kind of subject. Um, I love that you listen. I, I truly, truly appreciate your support and your listenership. And, uh, you know, you have no idea what it means to me for you to be tuning in right now to my podcast. Um, it's something I work really hard on, um, on my off time for free. Um, so I truly appreciate, appreciate your listenership. Um, but the last thing I want to do for any of my listeners is to upset them. Uh, so again, um, some of the content in these stories are graphic and can be very disturbing for some listeners. So I just want you to be warned. Um, if you are sensitive to those kinds of things and this kind of subject, maybe this isn't the episode for you. Um, with that, let's start the episode. The year is 1865. Two young boys, brothers, from a small town in France, seemingly become possessed by demons. The boys were Joseph and Theobald Brunner. Records show that they were about eight and ten years old at the time. The first signs that something was very off about the two boys come from records that were kept by the parish priest of Father Carl Bray. Father Bray notes that the boys become obsessed with all things very dark and sinister in nature and showed absolute repugnance of anything religious. One entry in Father Bray's account says, while lying in their bed, the children used to turn to the wall, paint horrible devil faces on it, and then speak to the faces and play with them. If, while one of the possessed was asleep, a rosary was placed on his bed, he would immediately hide under the covers and refuse to come out of hiding until the rosary was removed. But what was most disturbing about the boys' behavior were their contortions. Father Bray describes, They entangled their legs every two or three hours in an unnatural way. They knotted them so intricately that it was impossible to pull them apart, and yet, suddenly, they could entangle them with lightning speed. At times, the boys stood simultaneously on their heads and legs, bent backwards, their bodies arched high. No amount of outside pressure could bring their bodies into a normal position until the devil saw fit to give these objects of his torture some temporary peace. It became obvious to Father Bray that the brothers were indeed possessed by evil. Father Bray's entries continue to describe supernatural occurrences involving the two boys. At times, their bodies became bloated as if about to burst. When this happened, the boy would vomit, whereby yellow foam, feathers, and seaweed would come out of his mouth. Often their clothes were covered with evil-smelling feathers. No matter how often their shirts and outer clothing were changed, new feathers and seaweed would appear. The feathers, which covered their bodies in some inexplicable way, filled the air with such a stench that they had to be burned. On more than one occasion, the boy's mother was sitting on the bed with them when suddenly the bed would rise off the floor. And after hovering for a few seconds, she would be thrown off into a corner. Several times, the boys would be found levitating off their bed in a sitting position. Sometimes, even when no stove was lit, there were times when the boys' room would be so hot no one else could bear occupying it. The only way the temperature could be brought down was if holy water was sprinkled around the room. Other strange occurrences would involve windows bursting open, furniture flying across the room, and drapes would fall by themselves. Sometimes, the entire house would shake as if an earthquake was happening.
Now, as I mentioned earlier, any person or object of a religious nature was abhorred by the boys. Rosaries and crosses would send them into fits. They would scream blasphemies, hide under their beds, and sometimes even jump out of the window in the presence of holy objects and people. They especially hated Father Bray. But according to one of his written records, when someone of less fervent faith entered, the boys were delighted, proclaiming, That one is one of ours. They should all be like that. Even more extraordinary was the boys' ability to speak in foreign languages. Now remember, they're French, but they would be heard speaking in English, Latin, and Spanish. All three languages were unknown to the boys. They also had frequent displays of clairvoyance. Theobald several times predicted the death of a person correctly. Two hours before the death of a Frau Mueller, the boy knelt by his bed and acted as if he were ringing a morning bell. Another time he did the same thing for a whole hour. When he was asked for whom he was ringing, the boy answered, For Gregor Cunegel. As it happened, Cunegel's daughter was visiting in the house. Shocked and angry, she told Theobald, You liar! My father isn't even ill! He is working on the new boy's seminary building as a mason! Theobald answered, That may be, but he just had a fall. Go ahead and check on it. The facts bore him out. The man had fallen from a scaffold, breaking his neck. This happened at the very moment that Theobald made the bell ringing motions. No one in the town had been aware of the accident. So Father Bray and the boy's parents decided that Joseph and Theobald needed an exorcism. Theobald was then sent to St. Charles Orphanage near Strasbourg. And I want to note that the reason that Theobald was sent first without Joseph is because Theobald's symptoms were a lot more severe than Joseph's. And on record, it, it says that when Theobald uh, arrived at the orphanage, um, he remained silent. Um, in fact, it says uh, for three days, there was three or four men that held the boy uh, on an altar for three days against his will. Uh, but he remained silent, or at least the demon that possessed him uh, remained silent. But on the fourth day, the demonic entity said, I have come, and I am enraged. The orphanage was run by nuns, and one of the nuns present asked the demon, And who are you? It is recorded that a non-human voice answered, I am the Lord of Darkness. So, after everyone shit their pants, Theobald started ripping his clothes off and destroying everything around him. Pure fucking chaos ensued. Dark and terrifying beastly noises were erupting from Theobald. He was finally subdued and placed in a straitjacket. A few days later, Joseph also arrived at the orphanage. The superior of the orphanage was a priest by the name of Father Stumpf. He would be the one to perform and lead the exorcism of Theobald. During the long and arduous exorcism, both boys displayed supernatural behavior. For example, at one point both boys developed red lice. The lice would multiply so quickly that three or four people with combs weren't able to keep up with them. Only when the priest poured holy water on the red lice did they quit producing. In fact, as soon as the holy water hit them, the lice vanished, as if they were never there. At the final stages of Theobald's exorcism, Father Stumpf called upon the Virgin Mary. Theobald let out a terrifying scream and threw himself forward. When he hit the ground, 
he fell silent, and it was observed that he was unconscious, out cold. When he finally woke, he seemed to be the little boy everyone knew him as again, and he had no memory of the previous three days. Father Bray himself performed Joseph's exorcism. It only took three hours, but for three hours, Joseph screamed and thrashed until finally the devil let him go. And just like Theobald, when Joseph came to, he seemed to be back to his normal self and had no memory of the previous days. The boy's possession lasted four years in all. The rites of exorcism is what finally freed them from the grip of evil. Unfortunately, neither of the boys lived very long lives. They both died very young for unknown or at least unrecorded reasons. Theobald died at the age of 16 in 1871. Joseph passed away at 25 in 1882. All right, I don't really like the topic of demonic possession. I don't really like anything that has to do with demons or the devil or any of that shit. But I've got to talk about it. It still intrigues me. It's still strange and otherwise unexplainable to many. So of course it has to be featured on Parasensory, right? I was born and raised in South Mississippi. People sometimes ask, how far south in Mississippi? And I tell them, until you hit the water. That's as far south as you can go. Yeah, I was born and reared on the Gulf Coast, with bayous, crawfish, and hurricanes, and churches. Lots and lots of churches. My family started me out as a Southern Baptist. Then we migrated to the Assembly of God denomination. Then I think we dipped our toes into some Methodist waters and then back to Assembly of God and then back to Southern Baptist and you get it. My dad quit going to church at one point when I was still pretty young. I think he lost a little faith along the way. Not in God. No, he lost faith in people. People that represented God. People that claimed to be Christ-like, but you know, as far as that goes, we as people, we as imperfect human beings, being Christ-like is impossible. There was a church we attended for a long time that was very charismatic. Dictionary says charismatic means exercising a compelling charm which inspires devotion in others. This is not what charismatic meant to me as a young boy. To me, it only applied to your behavior at church. And your behavior was to dance, flow your body around like you're drunk, yell, scream, cry while you shake your arms at the ceiling, shout in a made-up language no one understands, and fall to the ground when the pastor seemingly smacks you on the forehead. Growing up watching crazy people do these crazy things, I never took part in any of it. I was an observer. But there was one time my mother walked down to the altar to be prayed over. She walked down the aisle and was swallowed up by a group of women that met her at the altar. They engulfed my mother. I couldn't even see her from the pew my dad and I were sitting in. The women prayed and prayed and prayed over my mother. Their chants got louder every few seconds. Some started shouting. Others started speaking in tongues. The music played louder. The pastor started shouting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And then it all stopped. 
my mother rose out of the pile of the prayerful. They departed for her like the Red Seas did for Moses. And quietly, calmly, and confidently, my mother walked back to her seat beside me and my father and we politely finished out the service. That was the last time we visited that church. Turns out, while my mother was buried in a prayer huddle and things started getting intense, a woman in the group whispered in my mother's ear, Just fall down. Just fall down. Because I was young and impressionable at the time, when I would watch these people shout and flail and cry out loud and speak in tongues and dance and fall to the ground in the name of the Holy Spirit, I would think to myself, surely there is some truth to all this. Surely not all of this is fake. But when my mother told me what happened that day at the altar, when she was submerged by the disciples of truth, when she told me what that woman whispered in her ear, I lost some faith too, like my father. Faith in people. It was all fake, wasn't it? This is all just a show, a highly entertaining show put on to create more followers. The show convinces the desperate that there is a heaven and a hell, and if you don't scream and shout and dance and speak in tongues and fall to the ground, well, you might end up in the downstairs rather than the upstairs. And as we all know, more followers means more money. That's why they did it. Money. So, it was fake, I decided. I had been duped. How gullible I was, right? I held this opinion for a long time, and years later, a friend invited me to his church. I wasn't big on church, and he knew that, but neither was he, so I thought it was kind of strange that he invited me. I went to a service. It was another charismatic church. People dancing, jumping, yelling, falling down. I politely stood by and smiled. Whatever, I thought. I ended up meeting some other kids there my age that were actually pretty cool, and so it wasn't all bad. Later in the service, a lady rises from the pews and walks toward the altar. She walked somewhat with a limp, and I didn't think much of it. She gets to the altar and asks for prayer, and I thought, oh, for her limp. She wants prayer for her legs. All of a sudden, this woman vomits everywhere, profusely green, pea-soup-looking, nasty, smelly vomit. The entire church is gasping. People in the front and second rows are rising up and clearing away from her. Utter confusion blankets the church. Then, well, then she screams. That scream, it wasn't from her, no. It was from something inside of her. Something that didn't sound human. Something animalistic. Something that made you feel extremely uneasy. Something that let you know that something isn't right here. I quickly lose my smile. I have no idea what I am witnessing. This wasn't someone dancing. This wasn't someone speaking in tongues or flailing their arms or throwing themselves down to the ground. No one whispered in this woman's ear and told her to scream like that. No, this wasn't a show. This was real. The pastor and several other men run toward the woman. She let out more screams and noises that were seemingly impossible for a human to make. The men surrounded her and began shouting things like, Leave this woman, devil! We rebuke you in the name of Christ! Be gone, demon! They started yelling scriptures at the woman and something evil inside her would laugh 
Other times it seemed like their words were hurting her or hurting what was inside. The prayer, the shouting, the animal noises, it all went on for about 10 minutes. That doesn't sound like a long time, but in this particular situation, 10 minutes might as well have been 10 years. The woman vomited a few more times, an amount of vomit that seemed impossible for anyone to regurgitate. And then the noises stopped. The screaming ceased. The lady was on the floor. She looked exhausted and sweaty. Her breathing was heavy but was getting better. And after a few minutes, the men helped her to her feet. She then became surrounded by the entire church, receiving hugs and shouts of thanks and hallelujahs. I'm still standing at my seat, dumbstruck. I turned to my friend, my friend who invited me here. I don't think I said anything. We both just looked completely dumbfounded. I turned to another kid standing there, a kid I'd just met earlier. And I think I managed to stammer out, what just happened? And this kid's eyes were huge with excitement. His mouth was a wide open smile and he turned to me and answered, she was possessed, dude. In my bewildered state, the word possessed didn't quite process in my brain at that moment. I asked the excited young man, what do you mean possessed? He turned to me again, his eyes still glimmering, and said, possessed, dude. There was a demon in her. They cast out a demon. I wanted to ask if it was fake, but I didn't have to. I knew that shit was real. Welcome back to another episode of Parasensory, where today we're telling stories of evil. The kind of evil that grabs people, distorts their will, and allows them to display certain behavior that is beyond our normal sense of perception. That's right, very parasensory indeed. Now, I do want to mention again that if you are someone who is sensitive to this kind of material and content and this particular theme, then it may be best that you skip this episode. Not that I don't want you to listen, but I'd rather you not get upset. Or shit your pants, because some of these are shit your pants worthy stories. Now, if you are all about this strange and intriguing topic, and you're all about stories that make you shit your pants, well then tune in and turn your frequency to the strange, because we're about to dive into another episode of Parasensory. This next story is about a girl named Clara, and when Clara was 16 years old, she made a pact with Satan. So Clara confessed this pact with Satan to her confessor, uh, a father Erasmus Horner. She attended a mission school, and she had been there since she was four years old. Shortly after the confession, Clara began to behave very erratically. And on August 20th, 1906, she started tearing her clothes off. She broke one of her posts on her bed. She started growling and grunting like an animal, and she would seemingly converse with invisible beings. There was one instance where she called out, Sister, please call Father Erasmus. I must confess and tell him everything. But quick, quick, or Satan will kill me. He has me in his power. Nothing blessed is with me. 
I have thrown away all the medals you gave me. Um, I honestly don't know what the medal uh, reference is to. I don't know if in Catholic school you get medals or, or what that's about. But um, anyway, later that day, she called out again. She said, You have betrayed me. You have promised me days of glory, but now you treat me cruelly. No one knew what was going on with Clara. Up until this point, she was a very normal girl. Sometimes she might act out or, you know, have a burst of energy and she would need to be disciplined, but otherwise she was a very normal, healthy young girl. As her outbursts got worse, the priests and the nuns all agreed that she was demonically possessed. Holy water would burn Clara if she was sprinkled with it. If she was sprinkled with regular water, she would just laugh. She would always get very upset and be sent into fits if anything of a religious nature was brought near her. Sometimes even a fragment of a cross would send her into violent outburst, even if that fragment was heavily covered or concealed. And just like we heard about earlier with Joseph and Theobald, Clara also developed the ability of clairvoyance. One time, Clara gave incredible details about a priest's journey from Africa to Rome, including addresses of places where he stayed. Another time, a young man made fun of Clara, and to get him back, Clara revealed scandalous details about his private life. Those details included names, dates, and times of his scandalous activities. Clara's confessor, Father Erasmus, had a written record of some of Clara's physical manifestations, one of them being levitation. Here is one of his entries. Clara floated often three, four, up to five feet in the air, sometimes vertically, with her feet downward, and at other times horizontally, with her whole body floating above her bed. She was in a rigid position. Even her clothing did not fall downward, as would have been normal. Instead, her dresses remained tightly attached to her body and legs. If she was sprinkled with holy water, she moved down immediately, and her clothing fell loosely onto her bed. This type of phenomenon took place in the presence of witnesses, including outsiders. Even in church, where she could be seen by everyone, she floated above her seat. Some people tried to pull her down forcibly, holding onto her feet, but it proved to be impossible. Now, this next physical manifestation that Clara would perform kind of freaks me out a lot. It was her ability to transform into a snake-like creature. And the reason that freaks me out is because, well, I absolutely hate snakes. The nuns and priests would describe her whole body as being flexible as rubber, and she would writhe along the floor. Ugh. I can hardly get that out of my mouth. Ugh, that just sounds terrifying. They said that there were other times that it would seem like her neck would elongate, and it would just enhance the serpent-like impression she gave. Oh my gosh. The record also states that once, while she was being restrained, she darted like lightning at a nun kneeling in front of her and bit the poor woman on the arm. Jesus Christ. The wound showed the marks of Clara's teeth and a small red puncture resembling a snake bite. Nope. That's a big old bag of nope from me. So, in September of 1906, Clara's confessor, Father Erasmus, uh, accompanied by a Father Mansuet, the mission rector, began an exorcism on Clara. Um, the rites began in the morning and lasted until noon. Uh, they began again at 3 p.m. and continued into the night. Now, the next morning they started again at 8 um, and it says it lasted about two hours, so it lasted till about 10 in the morning. And the records say that um, there was just a fierce pressure from the priest 
during this exorcism, and finally the possessing demon said that he would signal his departure by an act of levitation. This act of levitation apparently occurred before 170 witnesses in the mission chapel. It says prayers of thanks were later given. Well, hell yeah, my God. This bitch is acting like a snake, biting people. Fuck that. So, so check this out, though. Uh, about four months later, uh, this is what's recorded. About four months later, in January of 1907, Father Erasmus, uh, he's away, he's off somewhere, and guess what Clara does? She makes a new pact with Satan. A new pact. A second, a second pact with Satan. Yeah. Good job, Clara. Being an evil human snake wasn't enough. Let's do it again. So another four months go by, um, about three or four months. Um, it was sometime in April they did another exorcism on her. And this time, the, the demon said that his departure would be signaled by an incomparably foul smell. Jesus. So instead of a snake, I guess she decided to be a skunk this time. So apparently Satan had a bout of flatulence, and that was it. Clara was free from his grip once again. Um, and hopefully she never made a pact with Satan again. Um, I, I still can't believe that. A second pact with Satan. Wow. Our last story is about one of the most detailed and recorded occurrences of demonic possession. It's about Emma Schmidt, although many know her as her pseudonym, Anna Eklund. But for the sake of the story, and because we all know her true identity uh, these days, I'm just going to refer to her by her real name, Emma. Emma was born in Wisconsin in March of 1882. She was raised by a very devout Catholic family, so seemingly she was in a very religious environment, I assume. There isn't much detail about Emma's early life that I can find in any records. Um, by all accounts, it seemed like she grew up in a very normal environment, um, and she was a very normal and healthy girl, although we will find out later that um, that wasn't quite the case. At age 14, Emma started displaying very strange behavior. For example, voices started speaking from inside of Emma, stating blasphemies. Emma was a devout traditional Catholic and these voices would sabotage her religious practices. Because the voices were involuntary, they were very frightening for Emma, and rightfully so. Emma also displayed a borderline violent aversion to religious objects, developed the inability to enter churches, could understand languages that she had never been taught, would foam at the mouth when blessed by a priest, and reportedly took part in unspeakable sexual acts. This all went on for years, and no one knew what to do. Finally, Emma was taken to a doctor. He found her to be perfectly healthy and totally normal. So nothing changed. So then she was taken to another doctor. Same thing. Healthy girl. Nothing wrong. But something was wrong. Things started getting worse as time wore on. She ended up being examined by several doctors and it was always the same. No physical illness whatsoever. Psychiatrists even concluded that she didn't even have an anxious or hysterical personality. She was, quote, normal in the fullest sense, end quote. In 1912, at the age of 20, Emma finally underwent an exorcism. Even though this is one of the most heavily documented cases of possession, little to nothing was recorded about Emma's first exorcism. 
What we do know is that it was performed by Capuchin monk Father Theophilus Reisinger, and that Emma would not be counseled about her possession again until 1928, almost two decades later. So, fast forward to 1928, Emma is now 40 years old, and it is suggested that she undergo a second exorcism. This time, a Father Joseph Steiger, a friend of Father Reisinger's, suggests that the exorcism be performed at a convent. Father Reisinger would again help in the aid of exorcising Emma. In August of 1928, Emma was taken to the convent. She immediately showed symptoms of her possession, like refusing food that was sprinkled by holy water, levitating, throwing random fits of rage and hissing at anyone who approached her. The first session of the exorcism lasted eight days and was reportedly violent. On the second day of the exorcism, it is reported that a number of nuns who were considered very strong helped hold Emma down to an iron bed. Emma then became unconscious. Father Steiger and the nuns noticed that her eyes were shut so tight that no amount of force would open them. Emma remained like this through most of the exorcism. Shortly after going unconscious, an incredibly terrifying scream came from Emma's body. It was an intense, piercing scream that filled the room, but simultaneously sounded like it was coming from far away. After the screaming ceased, the sound of howling, like the howling of animals, came from Emma's body. Father Reisinger shouted, Silence, Satan! But the chilling uproar of otherworldly noises continued. The clamor coming from Emma became unbearable. Her face and body became horribly mangled and twisted. The sight of Emma and her contortions proved to be too much for Father Steiger and the nuns who had to occasionally leave the room. Father Reisinger, though, held fast. He was used to this. This was not his first rodeo. For days, the exorcism lasted. Emma, or what was in Emma, continued to howl and contort her body horrifically. It is reported that because Emma refused to eat, she did accept a spoonful of milk or water during the day to sustain her. But despite having hardly anything to eat or drink, Emma would pass an inhuman amount of excrement and vomit. There were times that she would disgorge bowelfuls of what looked like shredded tobacco leaves. The second session of Emma's exorcism lasted from September 13th to September 30th which was followed by a third and final session in December that lasted another eight days. At some point during the exorcism, Father Reisinger seemed to successfully solve the case on why and how Emma may be possessed and who was possessing her. He found out that one of the demons called himself Beelzebub and said that Emma had been possessed since she was 14. Beelzebub shared with Father Reisinger that Emma's father, whose name was Jacob, was the one who cursed her because he had frequently tried to force Emma to engage in an incestuous relationship with him, but she had always resisted and refused. The demon went on to reveal that because of Emma's resistance, her father went to Emma's aunt Mina, who was known as the local witch, to develop a curse against Emma. Jacob then uttered a curse asking demons to enter Emma's body to destroy her chastity. Emma's Aunt Mina was known for casting spells on people's food, especially Emma's. Mina was also involved in a long-time affair with Emma's father, Jacob. Later on, it was also revealed to Father Reisinger that besides Beelzebub, Emma was also possessed by her father, Jacob. He confessed that he joined the possession demons after his own death and damnation. Emma's Aunt Mina was also one of the demons inhabiting her. She revealed that she was damned for murdering four of her own children. 
A fourth demon, who went by the name Judas, also revealed himself as one of the possessing demons and that his only goal was to drive Emma to commit suicide. Just like in the other stories we've heard in this episode, there were expressions of clairvoyance from the possessing entities in Emma. At one point during the long and violent exorcism, Father Reisinger and Father Steiger began to have a stifled relationship. Father Steiger began to wish he had never agreed to have this exorcism occur here at his parish. Father Reisinger, though, saw this as nothing more than the devil trying to destroy their partnership and exorcising the demons from Emma. Father Reisinger also saw that the possessing demon took special interest in Father Steiger. Maybe the demon saw him as weak, Father Reisinger thought. The clairvoyance came by way of the demon expressing to Father Steiger, Just wait until the end of the week. When Friday comes, then... No one knew what this meant, but Father Steiger was on high alert on Friday at the end of the week. On that day, he drove to visit a sick parishioner, and on his way back, he remembered the demon's words. Along the journey back, Father Steiger had to cross a bridge that was over a deep ravine. He drove with special care. It's reported that as soon as Father Steiger drove onto the bridge, it was as if he was surrounded by a black fog. Soon, Father Steiger couldn't see anything, and sure enough, he felt his car ram into the railing of the bridge. His car was now teetering over the edge of the bridge. A nearby farmer heard the crash and came running to Father Steiger's aid. The farmer helped him slowly crawl out of the car. And once the fog had lifted, it was revealed that the car had been heavily damaged and it was uncertain how Father Steiger escaped without any serious injury. When Father Steiger returned to the convent where the exorcism of Emma was still taking place, He was greeted with what sounded like several malicious voices all laughing loudly. The demons inside Emma shrieked. Today he pulled in his proud neck and was outpointed. I certainly showed him up today. What about your new auto? That dandy car that was smashed to smithereens. It served you right. Father Reisinger and the nuns asked Father Steiger if this was true. Did he wreck his vehicle? Father Steiger answered, Yes, what he says is true. My auto is a complete wreck, but he was not able to harm me personally. The demon then replied, It was our aim to get you, but somehow our plans were thwarted. It was your powerful patron saint who prevented us from harming you. Father Steiger's patron saint, St. Joseph. I want to make a note here real quick that it's reported that during all these conversations between the demons and anyone else, Emma, the possessed woman, her lips never moved. Her lips never came apart to speak. The voices were always seemingly coming from inside of her. So after the incident with Father Steiger, the exorcism went on for two weeks without any signs of success. But Father Reisinger was resilient. For a series of three days and nights, Father Reisinger prayed continuously, but the demons never wavered. But on the 23rd day of the exorcism, it seemed that the demons were finally showing signs of weakness. They became less aggressive and began to moan during certain times of exorcism as if they were being tortured. Late in the evening on the night of December 23rd, Emma suddenly rose to her feet and seemed to be free from the demons. But the demons were still there. It seemed they had lost their grip on Emma's body. Father Steiger shouted, Pull her down! Pull her down! while Father Reisinger blessed her and yelled, Depart, ye fiends of hell! Be gone, Satan! The Lion of Judah reigns! Emma fell to the bed, her body no longer stiff. 
A noise came from Emma's body that was so loud it reportedly made the room vibrate. The noise was followed by voices repeating the names Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, over and over and over again. But the voices were fading away until they cried. Hell! 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 And then the voices disappeared. Remember, Emma had been seemingly unconscious with her eyes tightly shut this entire time. But after the voices left, she sat up on the bed, opened her eyes, smiled, and said, My Jesus, mercy! Praise be to Christ! Although the exorcism was successful, it is reported that Emma did have milder and quite manageable possessions after that. Oh my gosh. I am so glad to be done with this episode. Um, I love doing this stuff. I I wish I could do it all day long. Um, But man, this episode has been a long and rough one. Um, And I'm I'm not uh, a particularly huge fan of this subject either. I think it's extremely intriguing, but man, sometimes... um, some of the stuff you read about and hear about um, oh, just gives you chills, right? Um, look, if you guys like uh, this subject, if you guys really um, like the subject of demonic possession and exorcism, um, I'm going to put a plug in for this guy's book. I am not being paid by this guy. Um, I just want to mention it uh, because I actually want to uh, mention something that was in it. Um, but it's called The Day Satan Called. Uh, the Day Satan Called, A True Encounter with Demon Possession and Exorcism. It's written by Bill Scott. This guy named Bill Scott. Again, I am not being paid to, to do this plug. This is not a paid ad for him or his book or the publishing company or anything like that. I just mention it because, of course, it has to do with this episode, and it's um, one of the only things that I have read about demonic possession that has just truly terrified me. If you have, uh, if you've read uh, books about it or seen movies or whatever, I can almost guarantee you nothing tops this book, "The Day Satan Called" by Bill Scott. There's a line. Uh, in that book, there's um, uh, a moment where they are trying to exercise these demons out of this woman. And uh, he describes the demons as like uh, going in and out of the woman like a revolving door. And uh, they're just they're just going at it for hours and hours and hours. And everybody is getting so tired. And finally, someone gets so fed up and irritated. And he shouts, um, uh, listen here, demon. Uh, you know that one day you will uh, bow to your knee and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, um, and, and everything got quiet. And the voice inside the lady, this demon, said, you know what, you're right. You're right. And everybody got quiet and, and felt relief and thought it was over. And then, man, all of a sudden, the demon just shouted, But today is not that day! And, oh my god, like, that's probably the one time um, I got... That, that's probably the closest I've ever gotten to literally shitting all up inside my pants um, from reading a book. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Um, thank you for tuning in. Please continue to listen. If you haven't subscribed... Uh, please subscribe. You should find me anywhere you can find podcasts. I know I'm on uh, Apple and Google, um, Stitcher, uh, all those places. Um, I'm on Spotify. Um, Guys, I love doing this stuff. Um, I'm just doing this on my off time. Of course, I have a day job uh, that helps fuel uh, this passion and this hobby, and I love doing it. I love producing it. I love coming up with the beats and the music. I love the narrating. I love storytelling. Um, so 
if you guys like this, if you guys like this show, um, I want to point out that if you go to my my uh, podcast profile page, you can go to anchor.fm um, and you should be able to search for my podcast and there should be a link that if you wanted to donate a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, anything is just beyond appreciated. Um, I want to continue to do this. I love doing this. Um, but guys, it, it, it isn't cheap sometimes and it's not, um, you know, it's, it's not something that's completely free to do. Um, so, you know, just any kind of contribution is like I said, beyond appreciated the listeners that I've, that I have, that I'm accumulating. Um, guys, thank you so much uh, for listening to the show. I'm so glad you enjoy it. Um, But anyway, thanks again for joining me for this crazy-ass episode. Um, I'm not sure what we'll talk about the next time. Um, I'm sorry it took me um, two weeks to put this one out. Like I say, this has been just a a long... um, I I don't know why it took so long to make this episode. Um, And also, of course, since I don't do this full-time, life just gets in the way, and sometimes I can't work on this when when I want to. But uh, join us next time, guys. Um, I'm sure it'll be something strange and enigmatic and intriguing. And I can't wait to do it. And I can't wait for you to hear it. So thanks a lot, guys. Remember, keep it strange. And remember, there's more to this world than what we see.